and welcome to No Favorite Movie, the podcast on which we get to know people better through the movies they love. I'm your host, Ethan Rosenberg. I'm releasing the first three episodes simultaneously to give folks a taste of how large the spectrum of these conversations can be. If Adam Sandler isn't your thing, I still encourage you to listen to the first couple of minutes of that episode to get a stronger sense of what the show is about. Today's episode features a conversation with Scott Varn about The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, theatrically released in December 2001, with an extended cut released in November 2002, which is the version we discuss here. The Lord of the Rings is an epic fantasy cycle of three films about a young hobbit named Frodo, who is tasked with casting the One Ring to rule them all into the fires of Mount Doom. A lot of other things happen along the way. Today's topics include, but are far from limited to, environmentalism, passion in movie making and movie watching, and what it's like to be a COVID production assistant on one of New York City's biggest sets. Without further ado, I bring you Scott Varn. I'm here with Scott Varn, filmmaker, currently a set PA on The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. You were one of the first people I thought of for the show because I know how much you love Lord of the Rings and the Fellowship of the Ring in particular. There are so many ways to approach Lord of the Rings. There are so many different ways to approach the Fellowship of the Ring. And I want to start with what drew you to it initially? Well, yeah, I know a lot of people always, especially in the film world, always have trouble saying what their favorite movie is. But I, for most of my life at this point, have been clearly able to label Lord of the Rings as my favorite movies. And I always say it's all three of them. I just, I look at it as one long movie that for obvious logistic reasons, you know, no one's going to go sit through one sitting of a 12 hour movie unless you're crazy like me. But for the sake of the podcast, I was like, let's talk about Fellowship just so we can keep it short. But I remember I don't know, being a little kid and seeing the trailers for those movies and my parents were like, you can't go see that. It's PG-13. And I was like four years old or whatever, I think, when Fellowship came out. So like for my eighth birthday, I remember my mom was like, what do you want for your birthday? And I said, I want to watch, <laughs> I want you to let me watch Lord of the Rings finally. Because um, I don't know what it was about that world, but seeing the trailers and stuff really drew me to that. And then I had an early established love of fantasy through Harry Potter, all of that baggage that's since come up about that aside. You know, that was a really big pop culture thing when I was a little kid. And one of the first, my first exposures to high fantasy as a genre, I think. So then Lord of the Rings came along. And I was like, oh my God, it's got, it's like Star Wars. It's got sword fighting and it's, but it's got like goblins and magic like Harry Potter. And so finally, like my eighth birthday rolls around and we go to Blockbuster and pick Fellowship of the Ring off the shelf and we take it home and you know, had a few friends over and watched that movie. And ever since then, I've just been absolutely in love with it. Return of the King is one of the few movies that's ever actually made me cry. <laughs> I became just like the Lord of the Rings guy for a lot of people. And I have a couple props because like among my friends, that became such a big deal that if I ever had a friend go on a family trip or something to New Zealand, I would get something brought back for me. So like I have a, a hat from Weta Workshop who did all the like prosthetics and armor and weapons and stuff from them. Another friend got me these coasters from the Green Dragon Inn in Hobbiton. And then I had a friend. This is probably the biggest deal. This is like the coolest thing I own. And I'm not going to name them because they did commit a felony to get me this. They stole a rock off of Mount Doom. 
like the mountain they used to film Mount Dumont, it's like a national park and taking this rock out of the park and into the airport was a felony. That's just sort of like how big of an impact this has had on me is that I've had friends who've been commit felonies for me. <laughs> That's my long-winded sort of explanation as to what this kind of means to me, I guess. Do you share these movies and this movie in particular with anybody? Oh, as many people as I can convince to sit down with me and watch them. I, I try to watch I try to watch them at least once a year. If I can convince anybody to watch them with me and do it in a single day, I will. I've done that a few times, but usually I can get convince people to watch it with me and break it up, you know, at least do one or two at a time, especially people who've never seen it or haven't seen it in like a decade or two. I will sit them down and make them watch it with me and dirt out. What's that experience like of showing it to people who haven't seen it or haven't seen it in a long time? Are they generally pretty receptive? Yeah, I've never had anybody really just say, oh, this sucks or like, oh, it's not really my thing. Or like, even if going into it, they say, oh, I don't think this is really my thing. Like you, could, there's just so much like love and attention that was put into those movies by the whole crew that it's like it's hard to not like it when you watch it, even if it's like not really your thing. I feel like they are so well crafted and so well made that most people generally are gonna like them. I don't really ever meet anybody who says all oh, those suck. I don't like them. They might not want to sit through the whole four hour long extended edition like I will, but uh, most people generally seem to enjoy them. I recall when we were texting, you asked that we discuss the extended version is there a reason why you wanted to talk about the extended version over the theatrical i just i haven't watched the theatrical cut in probably like 10 years <laughs> so i like my my knowledge on it isn't as fresh that's just the extended editions are just the ones that i watch all the time and they don't really add anything super important aside from some stuff i think in two towers and return of the king i think there's a lot that gets cut in the theatrical version that's not super important or relevant but if you're a, a nerd like me, the extra, you know, the extra bits that are pieces from the book that got left out because they're not super important or just like sort of expand upon the lore. I think having that on there helps it feel a little bit more alive and a little bit more real and true to the enormous history that Tolkien created over 30, 40 years of his life. What's your relationship to Middle Earth and the Tolkien mythology, if you will, beyond the films? I read Lord of the Rings and I've read The Hobbit. I've seen all of the animated movies that uh, that were released in the 70s and early 80s. I'm like slowly working my way through the Silmarillion. That's the biggest piece of like extra literature that I've been trying to break through. But it's it's written like a history book. And I've only I started reading it in like August, and it's so immense. And it's really it's not written really in like prose. It's written academically just kind of compiled from notes, notes and stuff that J.R.R. Tolkien had left and his son sort of posthumously took it all and combined it into this like history of all of Middle Earth. And it's like 5,000 years of history going from like this creation myth that Tolkien created all the way through to the events of the Lord of the Rings, which are the last chapter of the book. So the, the story of Lord of the Rings is like such a speck in the vast history that he created for this world and i've really only like started to dip my toes into all the other stuff that you know existed outside of this like 100 year span of time that the hobbit and lord of the rings encompass are you looking but forward to the amazon show i am i i am i'm trying to keep my expectations low i've been burned too many times by stuff so i i'm excited but i'm 
keeping my hopes down. Who knows where it's going to go? I know a lot of people are upset about a bunch of unrelated bull crap about him. I'm waiting to see until I've actually, you know, seen it on screen in front of me to judge. Funny enough, and I think this speaks to the cultural staying power, for better and for worse, I suppose, of Lord of the Rings. I just saw a YouTube video the other day. So the video channel is called internet comment etiquette yeah and he's to, so you know him okay yeah so, i watched that video too oh okay yeah so <laughs> about woke lord of the rings yes exactly and a lot of people are complaining about yeah. the fact that the cast is diverse and you know, he's kind of lampooning that in the form of his really outrageous comments do you have any feelings about the lack of diversity in those initial films and how that's being addressed now, both in terms of by the Amazon show and by the commentariat. Some are responding positively, some are responding uh, negatively, I guess, to put it <laughs> nicely. Yeah, I think a lot of the outrage is just ridiculous. Middle Earth is an inherently diverse place. What they call races is different than what we refer to as race, but like you, it's, it's, the fellowship is diverse. There's hobbits and elves and dwarves and wizards. And like the fact that people are getting upset over dark skinned people being elves and dwarves and stuff is just ridiculous. It, it doesn't, you know, there's nowhere in the books that it says that an elf can't be black. They're quoting passages where they talk about, oh, this elf is, has pale skin or whatever. I'm like, it, it's, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. You know, if they're going to be a good actor, then let them do a good performance. It's, judge them based on their performance and the portrayal not based off of their skin color i think fantasy has been dominated by especially like in the west our idea of fantasy is extraordinarily dominated by tolkien inspired western european stuff so it's inherently a very white kind of space i don't think that that is the way it needs to stay you know we're starting to see the diversity in other fantasy stuff i know the witcher show cast people of color in roles that were conceived to be white people and a bunch of people got mad about that that new amazon animated show legends of vox machina that critical role show has a lot of people of color in that show it's it is necessary and people getting bent out of shape about it are just people that are going to get left behind culturally and just need to accept that we live in a diverse world and they're not the only people who deserve and get to be represented it's silly that in a world where there are dragons and elves you're concerned about a person being black and having pointy ears. Just get over it. <laughs> this brings up for me the notion of kind of the daily life in relation to fantasy in general, but you know, we're talking about Lord of the Rings here. In what way does Lord of the Rings and the Fellowship, what role does that play in your daily life, if any? A lot of my taste and stuff probably is derived from an early love of Lord of the Rings and fantasy that sprung from there like i a dungeon master i run dungeons and dragons so a lot of my free time is spent like prepping and getting ready to run a DD session every weekend and i think that i could directly trace my wanting to play a game of dungeons and dragons to wishing that i was aragorn when i was nine years old you know so i think one of my biggest hobbies comes from it other than like evangelically espousing how great these movies are to everybody i can at any moment <laughs> Why do you think these particular movies hold up for you? I think it, how much passion went into it on all fronts. It's really just a set of circumstances and a sets of people who all came together at precisely the right time and were lucky enough to sort of just get this, not like a blank check, but sort of a, a green light to sort of have at it. You know, you get three years of pre-production to make these movies and everybody 
gave it their all and genuinely had a love for the source material and representing it fairly. I know you, in your, you made a post on Letterboxd saying you had watched it with the commentary this time. And I was like three quarters of the way through the movie when I saw that. I was like, oh, I should have watched it with the commentary to prep for this. But afterwards, I, I popped in the behind the scenes disc and was watching those. And they talked about how a big goal they wanted going into it was to not treat it like a work of fantasy of literature but to treat it as if they were creating like a, a historical film instead of a fantasy film this the place the locations they were going to these are the locations that these things actually happened like they're shooting it on location in middle earth you know like if you were shooting a, a roman movie in italy or you know a king arthur movie in england or something not that that's a historical story but they were treating it with this reverence and respect and that comes across and shows there's so much like minute detail and work put into it. It wasn't just sort of to cash in on something and make a quick buck. It was made over the course of like a five-year period and people putting their blood, sweat, and tears into it to make it happen. And I think they got the right team of, I think they had like a 3,000 person crew at the end of it between all the construction and art department stuff. And, and we had all these fantastic performances. I can't think of like any role in the movies that was miscast. So yeah, all the leads went crazy howard shore went crazy on the soundtrack which i think is such a massive part of those movies i think that that soundtrack is as integral to the experience as a soundtrack can be to a movie i think any other music would have felt very wrong but i think it's sort of just like lightning in a bottle where they got super lucky and it's a circumstance that will probably not happen again for a very long time where a studio green lights a movie of that size and just sort of says go for it but I think New Line at the time, the production studio was sort of like on their last legs. And this was sort of like a risk to save themselves. And they're just like, screw it. Do what you want with this with this project. And we'll sort of keep our hands off and let you do what you want. I remember hearing or reading a quote from Elijah Wood in which he said, working on Lord of the Rings was like working on the most expensive independent movie ever made. I find that really powerful because, as you're saying, that passion really does shine through in fellowship. I'm sure it shines through in the other ones, but it's been a while for me for the other two. Yeah. And I'm wondering how, when you approach your own work, has a love for these movies affected you as a filmmaker? It's definitely gave me a, a love of, of genre as opposed to like just straight drama so a lot of the stuff i ever want to write i, I have this per serial perpetual problem where every idea i have and every script i work on is not something i can make because it's like a medieval period piece or a western or all this other stuff because i i want to create something this sweeping and epic and grand and unfilmable <laughs> at my current income level and status in the industry the biggest thing i take away from it is how much passion is important to making any art really the stuff that's made to cash in and make a buck never really has quite the same emotional center that something like this does have what are some of the emotional centers or sticking points for you with regard to fellowship are there scenes that stand mm -hmm. out for you as like wow the passion really comes through on behalf of the filmmakers or on the other side of the of that are there scenes where they're just so emotional for you like you mentioned earlier you know return of the king makes you cry mm -hmm. but are there any scenes that evoke that powerful emotion for you in fellowship oh yeah there's tons i think 
maybe the single most important scene in Fellowship of the Ring. And it's like one of the very last scenes is when Frodo is leaving the Fellowship and he's in the boat, he's paddling away. And Sam is like, you're leaving and I'm leaving with you. And he just dives out into the, the river, fully unable to swim. So Frodo has to turn around and save him. These themes of brotherhood and hope, hope in hopeless situations and how brotherhood and friendship and fellowship can sort of carry you through that. And I think that that it feels so authentic because it came from a very real place in Tolkien's own life with growing up with this tight knit group of friends and then all getting sent off to World War One together. And then I think only two of the four or five of them made it back. So they like watched their friends die. And in like the deadliest battle of World War One, the Battle of the Somme, he had a very real place to draw from when making this stuff. So I think just this idea of perseverance despite all odds and not giving up on those you care about and love is super important. There's also that scene in Moria uh, when Frodo and Gandalf are talking and Frodo's like, oh, I wish this, had, I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish this had, hadn't happened to any of us. And Gandalf talks, says, uh, so do all who live to see such times, but that's not for them to decide. All we can do is, all we can do is decide what to do with the time that is given to us. It's just like, there's just these like genuinely powerful emotional sentiments in this movie and there's never like they don't ever undercut it with a joke there's never any like winking at the audience like yeah there's goblins and, and stuff it's a bit silly and, but we know it's silly they let the emotions and they let those powerful moments sit and sort of hang on you to let you soak them in without ever yanking the rug out from underneath it which i think is super important and then we get like scenes like uh boromir's death at the end when you know aragorn sort of just at this moment sort of decides his path when he's holding like this guy he didn't really get along with and had a lot of big disagreements with in terms of like the purpose of their quest and how they need to be handling the situation and sees this man dying in front of him after sacrificing himself to save his friends there's just these genuine connections between these people in the face of the embodiment of evil that is about to sweep over the land that i think uh is good and like holds true and is relevant to everybody you know we live in a world where we see lots of shitty stuff and feel like we're kind of powerless to stop any of it especially over the last like two years so i think that those are always messages that can be related to by anybody in any situation one of the other themes that came up during the movie and i had kind of i had kind of seen it in previous viewings but it didn't come to me really fully crystallized until this viewing was that of environmentalism and industrialization, right? You have Sauron and correct me if I'm wrong. I believe he's working with orcs or he's created mm -hmm. a new race of creature yeah. that something like that, mm -hmm. that are destroying the land. And I think that one of the lines I'm paraphrasing slightly is like, tear them all down, tear down all of the trees and I also think in the future, I don't know if it's Two Towers or Return of the King, but one of the primary characters in one of those films is Treebeard. And I'm wondering yeah. if you have any thoughts on the role of environmentalism and activism, really, in a way, with mm. regard to these movies. Yeah, I think that's a huge, huge message in these movies. Definitely much more in two towers where we see the forest itself rise up and join the fight with Treebeard and the other ints. But one thing that gets left out of the movies that's in the books is that like there's the ints, but then there's this like sort of lesser class of tree person 
that aren't really like they can't really like walk around and talk like the ints can but they're sort of these other sentient tree beings that also sort of join the fight and so when all the orcs flee into the woods at the end of Helm's Deep they crush them so it's very much about the natural world rising up to sort of put its foot down on industrialization. Tolkien himself saw a lot of that in his life definitely with like again back to World War One, the mechanization of warfare and how that destroyed not only millions of lives but all this like natural land as well was completely destroyed by constant shelling and gassing. Like there's to this day, there's entire sections of Belgium and France that people can't go into because the ground is so toxic and still full of explosives. And I know in the the special features I was watching last night, they talked about how Tolkien growing up in Birmingham, England, like over the course of his life, saw it kind of go from, you know, the area he grew up in sort of go from this like idyllic sort of quaint village life to this really industrialized over a million person city um, and sort of just felt this loss. And I think it's really telling that like Tolkien's idealistic version of life, you know, with this, the place that he depicts as like idyllic and a perfect place to live is the Shire, which is completely green and lush and has these people so in tune with like living off the land. The same with like the elves in Loch Lorien, how their architecture is so built to exist, to coexist with the forest. You know, they don't, they haven't like come in with axes and chopped down any trees. They've built their houses around the trees and in the trees. And this message of environmentalism and conservation is super, super, super important to the story and to him. And I think that's most obvious in the start of the story in this idyllic country life in the Shire and the end of the story in this volcanic, ashy wasteland of Mordor. Evil comes from a place where there is no green, which I think is very telling. Oh, wow. That's really lovely. Yeah. Do you feel more strongly about the movies than the books? And if so, why? Um, I definitely have a stronger connection to the movies than the books, just because they were my first exposure to that story. And I've seen them a lot more than I've read the books. But I, I love the books a lot. I actually recently listened to the audiobooks because they just released new versions that were narrated by Andy Serkis. And those were awesome. If you're ever, if you're an audiobook person, definitely check out The Lord of the Rings read by Andy Serkis because those are killer. And I just, I just finished those like a month ago. And uh, I think the books are incredible works of fiction. Uh, like, there's nothing like it because he had such, because he didn't start writing those books until he'd already spent decades creating this, this language and this history and all this other stuff. So there's a sense of, history and weight to those that is sort of absent from a lot of other fantasy just because of the sheer amount of time and the thought he put into it beforehand but there's also a lot in those books that definitely sort of drags down the pace and would not work as a film maybe in like a mini series or something but he spends pages and pages just describing like a specific valley that they're walking through or like oh this hill and this set of trees like in the movies we get these big sweeping aerial shots of the fellowship walking across you know cresting a mountain or walking through a field but in the book it's like a three-page description of that exact same circumstance so the books definitely require a lot more patience than the movies even though the movies are a 12-hour long endeavor but i think they're they're beautifully written and a lot of the i mean a lot of the dialogue is ripped straight from the book you know there's a lot of power in tolkien's words and the filmmakers recognize that again they talked about the special features how they would like write something and change it or try to do it differently and then ultimately through discussing and working it out figuring out why it didn't work it would just lead them straight back to the source material because it's so good so it's hard to unlink them and judge them separately because there is 
while there are a lot of differences to convert a book to a movie, there is so much sinew and tissue holding them together that they're almost inseparable. How do you think they did with The Hobbit? I don't hate The Hobbit as much as a lot of people do. I recently rewatched them and like I like a lot of people had the opinion that oh they're ruined yada yada yada. I don't think they're nearly as good as Lord of the Rings, but they're fine. You know, they're too long. They took a really short book and made three immense movies out of it, but they're fine. As so as a fantasy nerd, I love getting to see like oh here's more of the realms of elves and here's a better look inside the culture of dwarves and all this other stuff. But you you know you get a lot of the same sort of good stuff like really good performances by again Ian McKellen and Andy Serkis and Martin Freeman and Lee Pace as King Thrandwheel and a bunch of other stuff but you can definitely see how when a lot of that passion and dedication is taken away you are left with a inferior story. Have you had a chance to dig into any of the bonus features on The Hobbit any of those films? Not since around the time they came out so it's been probably like 10 years, I guess, since the first one came out, but... I know, it's kind of crazy. Yeah. Uh-huh. I, think we're coming, I think it was 2012. It was like December 2012. Yeah. The first um, Hobbit movie came out, yeah. Yeah. I, I really would have liked to have seen Guillermo del Toro's version of The Hobbit. I think that would have been really cool. It's a bummer that it all shook out the way it did. You know, I think P- Peter Jackson definitely didn't want to come back and do that, and you can kind of tell. But now we get stuff like They Shall Not Grow Old and get back so he's making some sick ass documentaries now (laughs) he really is frankly so i really love the lord of the rings movies Mm. i really love king kong i had a similar feeling about king kong that you did with lord of the rings where i just it really opened up my sense of imagination with regard to cinema but I am one of the naysayers on The Hobbit. Mostly the third one, I think, is really poor. <laughs> yeah. Where it it honestly, I think, fails on certain fundamental levels uh, with regard to just like sheer continuity, right? I'm I'm watching it and it's one of the first movies that I had seen that I became aware of like, wait, the eyelines are not matching, right? Like mm-hmm. there's there's no coherence in terms of the staging of the action of the blocking. It was a valuable learning experience in that sense. But I also, my understanding is that they did effectively no pre-production on those Hobbit films. Yeah, it's well, all the pre-production was done while Del Toro was in charge. And then he dropped out and Peter Jackson had like six months to try to scrape it together before filming started. Whereas Lord of the Rings, they had years, like three, right. two or three years of pre-production to like hand make all these sets and props and stuff. And in many cases, make them twice because they had to make a big one and a little one because they needed sets to film, you know, for this all the scale stuff to make the hobbits look small and the humans look tall. So there's just like, there was no like time left to get that intricate and hand make everything and hand make every orc mask and hobbit foot and set. So there's a lot of the weight then gets carried by uh, a lot of CG that, you know, while there is a ton of CG in Lord of the Rings, I think they do a really good job of hiding it. Whereas, you know, we rarely get just like full on CG creatures in Lord of the Rings, whereas the entire, like the main antagonist in The Hobbit is a CGI orc that is not even in the original story at all. He's a he's mentioned as like a historical figure, but presumed to be dead. And then they bring him back. And Peter Jackson didn't want to, he didn't want to do him and kind of just had to because he sort of got sucked in at the last moment. So it seems like a burnt out lack of 
passion in those movies that sort of led to the barrel writing scene is now an action sequence <laughs> kind of deal. Like I said, I don't, I don't hate them like a lot of people do. I think they're fun. They're definitely not nearly as good, but I think there are good things in there that make them worth watching, at least for somebody who likes Tolkien like I do. But I remember when The Hobbit was coming out, like being in, I guess, high school and like super excited because I remember when they announced that they were even going to start working on them in like 2007. I had I had that newspaper clipping like cut out and pinned on my wall that The Hobbit was going to get made. And I was so excited and I went to the midnight releases of all of them and, you know, we go talking about them with my friends. So I remember like the hype cycle around those movies and being super excited and then watching them with rose tinted glasses at the time and then over time sort of seeing their flaws. So I still have some fun memories associated with those movies and them coming out. So I have not seen They Shall Not Grow Old, but I have seen The Beatles Get Back, which I think is one of the most astonishing and stunning documentary accomplishments, really. And perhaps I'm overstating it a little bit, but I <laughs> I do genuinely feel this way. Like, yeah. I do think it is genuinely one of the most astonishing accomplishments in the history of documentary filmmaking. Yeah. And what do you think it is about the failure or barring failure, the lack of passion with regard to the Hobbit films that then brought out so much enthusiasm and so much passion for They Shall Not Grow Old and The Beatles Get Back, his documentary projects, really archival documentary projects? Yeah, um, I haven't I haven't finished Get Back. I've seen about half of it. I think I watched the full first one and then about half of the second one. I need to get back to it. You know, like you were saying, that Elijah Wood quote that Lord of the Rings felt like the biggest indie movie ever made. Like Peter Jackson came from independent New Zealand cinema. Like he came from a place that doesn't have the Hollywood overbearing. And I think he dipped his toes into Hollywood for a little while. And after a lot of studio interference and stuff with The Hobbit, he sort of realized that's not where he wanted to be. And he wants a certain amount of control over his work that I think uh, a lot of directors should probably get that the studio system doesn't really allow for because it's a big business. They spend $500 million making a movie. They expect to make three times that back. You know, it's the nature of the beast. And I think it's not a beast he wants to tangle with anymore. So he's like taking a step back and is working on these smaller scale projects that he can have more creative control over and that he has a genuine interest in. I know he's like a big fan of World War One history. He's got, I think his grandfather fought in World War One, and I think Peter Jackson collects World War One memorabilia, but because he's Peter Jackson, he that memorabilia includes like fully functioning artillery guns <laughs> and stuff that he just keeps around. But I think, you know, that's sort of shows passion versus money in filmmaking is, you know, you can get a big fully funded Hollywood studio production and have a lot less creative control over it. And not to say that that stifles all creativity because we get a lot of really good big budget Hollywood blockbusters too. But I think for him, he having that creative control definitely shows in terms of the projects that he's made that did really well and people like versus the ones that he's made that people kind of shit on. Like with Lord of the Rings, everybody had that passion and everybody brought it with They Should Not Grow Old. They had, you know, this passion for bringing those stories to life. Everybody loves the Beatles. Everybody, you know, I'm sure there's not hard to find passionate people who would be willing to work on that project. Yeah, that's kind of the divide there is who who is in control of who gets to say kind of can affect the end product in that way. Well, speaking of working on Hollywood projects, we alluded at the beginning of the conversation that you're a COVID PA. 
yeah. on Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Mm -hmm. And for those who are unfamiliar with the job and those being me, <laughs> what is that job like? What is it like to be a COVID PA on a set like Marvelous Mrs. Maisel? Yeah, so we're like one of the biggest shows that shoots in New York. Probably like the biggest thing I've ever worked on. And to work on something that's that big and that has that much like, you know, pressure on it to keep making money because they're spending this much money on it. It's kind of incredible to see something like Lord of the Rings. And, you know, when you see how much money gets pumped into something and how much control they're kind of having, it's the stuff I work in, how much control and how specific they are about a lot of things. It's kind of cool to see how something like Lord of the Rings happens when they kind of just let go. They just throw the money and let it. But being a COVID PA is a lot of just like monitoring people to make sure they're wearing their PPE correctly and organizing testing, making sure that people are getting tested a couple times a week so we don't get talent sick. So we have to shut the whole production down for a week or whatever. I put a lot of air filters into rooms like our catering spaces and setting up testing. It's a, a lot of just like logistical stuff. And I don't spend a whole lot of time on set in this specific position on this show. You know, it's, it's, it's a show that's so big that everybody's job is so specific. Like they have so many crew members that everybody's doing like one little small thing at all times. And your job gets so specific and your responsibilities are so limited. Whereas I've been on like little $1 million indie movies that are, everybody's kind of doing a lot of everything. You know, your hands just kind of go where they're needed regardless of your title. So a big Amazon show in its fifth season, that's, you know, the number one show in the city. It's like they're throwing money at everything to keep it running smoothly in like a big machine. Something of that scale has got a lot of eyes, making sure things are going the way that they are supposed to. To wrap up our conversation, will you tell me about the first time you saw Fellowship of the Ring, what that experience was like emotionally? It's been a very long time, so I'll do the best that I can. But yeah, it was like my, my eighth birthday party. You know, we did like typical kid birthday party stuff and then I had a few friends sleeping over and we went to the blockbuster across the street from my neighborhood yeah I'm sure I assume you would go to blockbuster a lot as a kid certainly you know, an experience that we don't get to have anymore but you know right. walking into the blockbuster and finding it on the finding the tape on the VHS tape on the shelf and checking it out and taking it home and popping it in and like you know I had a bunch of friends over we were a bunch of eight nine-year-old kids who are inherently rambunctious and you know it's a three-hour long movie so I think a lot of my friends were like antsy and restless and wanting to not sit there and be still for the whole time. But I was just enthralled, like not wanting to goof around, just eyes locked to the TV. As the screen goes dark and the music swells and Galadriel's voice comes in for the prologue, I was just instantly hooked. I think it's like one of the most effective first like 10 seconds of a movie ever. And it doesn't have any visuals. And I think that's so solid. But I was just, yeah, I, I don't, know what it was about it that as an eight-year-old I couldn't have articulated it I guess at the time it was just escapism and being a little kid and wanting to go off on some grand adventure and seeing people like the hobbits who are these small people in a very big world who have this immense amount of influence that how you know the idea of good will win all the time and conquer evil no matter what it is a it was, it was very aspirational for a little <laughs> a little kid living in suburban America. Made me feel, I guess, gave you a sense of like importance for a small little kid at the time. Something this lofty ideal, perhaps to chase. It's definitely wormed its way into my mind and has stuck there ever since. And I remember immediately like trying to get my mom to take me back to Blockbuster and get the next two to watch those. 
The uh, Concerning Hobbits song by Howard Shore. That song is what happiness sounds like to me. <laughs> so I think that's uh, probably the best way I can describe watching Fellowship of the Ring for the first time. Thank you so much, Scott. This was a really amazing conversation. And yeah. I hope we can do the second and third films. Anytime. Let me know. This was All really right. fun. Sounds good. Scott Varn, the realist to ever do it. Thank you so much. <laughs> Ethan Rosenberg, thank you for having me, man. I would like to thank Scott once again for joining me today, and thank you to Jeff Smith for providing the music. Be well, and talk to you next time.